Hey everybody, welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Please join me in welcoming Megan up for tonight's joke. Um, I'm Megan, alcoholic. Okay, so why could, couldn't the ghost uh, make it to the AA meeting? Because he kept getting sheep-faced. <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise and that might or will distract others. Take this time to get reconnected to God, to get connected to God, and let the craziness of the day drift away. Ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? All right, let's take those lights down and get the monks in.
please join me in the fog light prayer. If you don't know it, you can just mumble along with me or read it off this flyer or the screens. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I've asked my friend Todd to come up here and read the appendix two from the big book, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Todd. Todd, alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to receive, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts, He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance and belligerent denial. We find no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness to honesty and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so please set your phones to airplane meeting mode or just go ahead and turn them off. Um, It's my privilege tonight to introduce uh, our speaker. He's a guest speaker for one week. This is a step series. As as a lot of you know, we've had an amazing experience so far with Pat R., and now we get, uh, we get to have Tom Roach, and he's, he's just an amazing, amazing guy. I've heard him speak uh, a couple times, once on the website, and then once upstairs about a year ago, and actually my mom heard him, and just, she's not even an alcoholic. It was just very compelling, so it's really an honor to have you here, sir, tonight with us. Thank you. Tom. 
Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Tom. Can you guys hear me in the back? <laughs> Can you guys hear me okay? All right. Um, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Tom. It's wonderful to be here tonight. Uh, there's probably some other places I could be on a Thursday night, probably some other stuff I could be doing, but there's probably no better place I could be and probably nothing better that I could be doing. Uh, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a program that uh, didn't just save my life, but changed it into one worth living. And I'm truly grateful. Uh, it's always an honor and a privilege to be able to do service. Um, so I want to thank uh, Mike and uh, Alcoholics and God for the opportunity to be here tonight and um, straighten out the mess that my friend Pat has made for the past couple of weeks. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I was with him Tuesday night. You know, some of you know me. You know, Pat's probably my best friend in AA. Um, yeah, the last couple times I was here, though, I, I was here in the spring. I think I told my story. I was here for Peter, and then I was here like a year and a half ago and um, talking about the history of AA. So tonight I'm going to, well, I don't know what I'm going to do exactly. Um, let me do the fine print, the legalese. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Tom Roach. My sobriety date is June 26, 2001, and my home group is the Central Fact Group, which meets at St. Ambrose Church on Federal Highway in Deerfield Beach Friday nights at 7.30. If you're looking for a meeting, we'd love to see you there, except we won't be there tomorrow night because the church is doing something, and uh, so we won't be back there again until next week. Um, I, um, I'm real, I'm nervous. I, I always get nervous. Um, I've been, I've just always gotten nervous when I speak for years, but, you know, as you saw, it took me, whatever, it took me 20 minutes to get to the podium. Um, you know, I was in an accident a few years ago, and um, I went to an automobile accident, and I went without a car. Yeah. That's a, this is my PSA for tonight. Yeah. Um, that's a bad way to go to an automobile accident. As a pedestrian, you know, I'm here to report in the pedestrian versus automobiles arena, yeah, automobiles remain completely undefeated, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I woke up in a trauma center with a brain injury and broken from head to toe and um, was told that I was run over by a car going about at highway speed going about 50 miles an hour. And... Um, and, and I lost that fight. So, um, you know, I have two PSAs tonight. One is, um, you know, don't go to an automobile accident unless you're all wrapped up in a car. And, um, and the second one is prevent truth decay. You know, read the book. Um, I, um, like I said, I get nervous. But now, since that injury, I, what happened is I lost my short-term memory. And I, I can, there's a lot of things that I know that are back here, but what happened is I can't remember that I want to talk about them. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of times I need to be, like, triggered, as it were, to, to remind myself. Um, so that's a challenge. In the beginning, I couldn't, um, like, I couldn't hold a two-minute conversation in the beginning. I would, you know, have to ask you again and again, what were we talking about? What did you ask me? What was I saying? Um, so that's gotten a lot better, and I'm grateful. And um, they said, 
they say if you get hit by a car at 20 miles an hour, your chances of dying are about 40%. If you get hit at a car by a car going 40 miles an hour, your chances of a fatality are 40%. So I'm in the 90 percentile somewhere for I'm supposed to not even be here. So, you know, I know I'm here by the grace of God, and, um, and now I can hold a conversation, although I, I have trouble with that short-term memory. And like I said, I get nervous, but now I get nervous. It used to be a nervous, like a healthy nervousness, like anybody gets nervous when they speak. Now I get like, like this hyper-nervousness, like this un- uncomfortable nervousness. And I, I think it mostly it has to do with the fact that of not being able to remember what I want to talk about. And um, so that's a, that's a bit of a challenge. Um, so if I get lost, bear with me. Um, I brought something to help me. Smart. Anybody ever use this? Does this work? <laughs> how how long does it take to work? <laughs> Hope it's that fast acting smart. Yeah. Um, so let me get situated up here. My book. And I got a couple things. Maybe I'll read some couple things. We'll see. Um, So to to get over this nervousness, I I started doing this years ago, um, but now it it helps me even more than it used to, and I just call it the lighter side. If I was doing a step series or a big book study or a tradition series or whatever, I'd be reading one of these a week. Um, But it just relaxes me. Hopefully it relaxes you. I'm not going to qualify myself tonight because I'm just going to talk more about AA, which I enjoy talking about more about than myself. But this is the, the short version of my story. Some of you have heard this if you've been through a step series or a big book study with me or something. Um, but this is kind of my story. And actually, I am going to get back to this because this is kind of Bill's story as, as well. An atheist was walking through the woods. What majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what beautiful animals, he said to himself. As he was walking alongside the river, he heard a rustling in the bushes behind him. He turned to look. He saw a seven-foot grizzly bear charging towards him. He ran as fast as he could up the path. He looked over his shoulder and saw that the bear was closing in on him. He looked over his shoulder again, and the bear was even closer. He tripped and fell on the ground. He rolled over to pick himself up, but saw that the bear was right on top of him, reaching for him with his left paw and raising his right paw to strike him. At that instant, the atheist cried out, Oh my God! Time stopped. The bear froze. The forest went silent. As a bright light shone upon the man, a voice came out of the sky. You deny my existence for all these years. Teach others I don't exist. And even credit creation to cosmic accident? Do you expect me to help you out of this predicament? Am I now to count you as a believer? The atheist looked directly into the light and said, It would be hypocritical of me to suddenly ask you to treat me as a Christian now. But uh, perhaps you could make the bear a Christian. 
Very well, said the voice. The light went out. The sounds of the forest resumed. And the bear dropped his right paw, brought both paws together, bowed his head, and spoke. Lord, bless this food which I am about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. <laughs> so that's my story, and I want to thank Alcoholics and God. <laughs> and that is my story. You know, I come here, you know, you just read Spiritual Experience, the appendix too. Um, that's an interesting appendix. If you have a, you know, mine, I have a, this is a second printing of a fourth edition, you know, from 2001. Um, if you have a book like I do, it says the appendices were added in the second edition. Probably there are a number of people like myself who, you know, I'm a big book guy, but I'm also a literature and a history guy. So I, I, on the one hand, I look at the big book as a, whatever, like my first couple of years as a big book thumper, but I also look at it from a couple different angles, and that's a historical lens and a a literary lens, because that's my background. Um, But that allows us to get a deeper, richer, fuller perspective, as it were. But at any rate, I'm sure there were people like myself around the country that, you know, I would call GSO a couple times a year to ask them some questions, usually tradition stuff. Um, But while I was on the phone, I would say, by the way, you know, in the preface, you say that the appendices were added in the second edition, and although that's true for, you know, there's seven of them, although that's true for the rest of them, it's not true for the Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. You know, the second edition was written in 1955, where most of the appendices were placed in the book. But that one that you just had read to you, that Appendix 2, that was the original appendix in the back of the book. When the book is printed, there are 4,700, about 4,700 copies of it, the first printing. And that's in 1939, right? And there are 100, about one, there are, there are 100 alcoholics, all right? Um, and about, um, I know everybody argues about the percentages, but uh, like I said, I'm into the history as well. There's like, um, you know, So here's from Bill to um, March of 39, just before the book. There's 100. And so if we count the successes and the failures, and then we count the unknowns as failures too, we've got about a 61, 62%, you know, with the first 100. I used to think there were 74, 75, because that's a rumor that goes around. But the guy that's done most of the research on this, John B., came up with 100. He came up with 100. Um, so anyways, like I said, I'm in, you know, I'm into the history. I left, I, I, you know, I left, I live in Boca, but I left here about 10 years ago to uh, go find some people that knew more about the big book. I had done everything I could around here to find out, learn what I could about the book and the history, and then, you know, went on a quest around the country to find some people that knew some more stuff. Um, but that appendix, so in 1941, in the spring of 41, they're out of the first 4,700 copies have been distributed, and they got to go, you know, back to print. And Bill looks around, and there are no longer just 100 sober. There are 2,000 sober. But what's the one big common denominator among those 2,000? 
They're not having white light spiritual experiences. And Bill has a 911 emergency to get Appendix 2 into the big book so that it can validate the spiritual awakening over time, like William James talks about the educational variety, like a guy like myself has. Because all kinds, you know, you know, we have lots of Bill's talks. Most times we don't have the talk after the talk, but every once in a while, you know, one of the Q&As that we have of Bill is people asking him all the time when he was telling the bedtime story, his story. They'd ask, you know, but I'm not having this white light thing. Does mine count, right? And Bill would say the spiritual awakening and spiritual experience are basically the same thing. And we know that because the fruits are the same, because we stay sober. Just one is over time, right? And he said something very interesting. He said, if you collapsed all of your like mini epiphanies and your spiritual experiences over the past six months or six years or whatever it is into six minutes, you would see stars too, right? So that's why, so in 1941, he gets that in. And in the, in the second printing of the first edition, the very first chance he gets, he gets us in that in there and then basically tells us three times on page 25, right, at the great fact, on page 27 when Roland Hazard is talking to Carl Jung and Carl Jung is explaining what a spiritual experience is like, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which used to be the guiding force of your life, need to be cast to one side, old ideas, and a whole new set of motives and conceptions begins to dominate you. And we're told for the second time, and then for the third time in We Agnostics, as we get to step two, we're told to go read that appendix on spiritual experience, so that we can validate the one that many of us will have, which is over time, right? Um, but, I, but I digress. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyways, I'm, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, you know, I love the big book. I love the big book. But I don't worship the big book. You know, the big book actually isn't the treasure. The big book is the treasure map, Right? that takes me to the narrative for the 12 steps to take me to a spiritual awakening. And a sponsor, you know, if, if you're going somewhere on vacation, you know, and you get a map, you have a better idea about where you're going. Well, what would help even more than that? A guide. Somebody who's also already traveled the same terrain. We might call that a sponsor, right? A guide who could help you better read that map and help you guide you to that spiritual awakening. So... It's not, it's not the treasure, it's the treasure map. So I don't worship it, but I do love it. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, you know, if some of you um, have heard me do that talk um, that I call Slender Threads um, about the history, that's a two-hour talk with a slideshow, and obviously I don't have time to do that. But what I wanted to talk about tonight more was about the book, but it does depend that you kind of know a bunch of the history first, so this talk normally takes a couple hours, and I'm not... Does anybody have to work tomorrow? <laughs> um, so I know I don't actually have time. What do I have to finish by 11, right? So, um, so what I thought I'd do is last time I was here in the spring, I told my story, but the, I was here a year and a half ago sitting in for Peter one night. Um, you know, one of my favorite communicators down here in Southeast Florida. We're so blessed. Um, and Pat. And at that time, I told, I did a history talk on the history of AA. So what I thought I might do to, to um, save some time is just leave, you know, start where I left off a year and a half ago. Um, 
Is there anybody that wasn't here a year and a half ago when I did that history talk? Oh, okay. Is there anybody that was here and doesn't remember exactly what I said? <laughs> um, so most of the history in the big book, when the big book is first published, is in a vision for Yale. But most of the history that we know is actually in the, the second edition and the forward to the second edition, right? And there's always three talks, you know. There's the talk that, um, you know, when I was asked a few weeks ago to do this talk, there's the talk that you intend to give. That's the first talk. That's a decent talk, by the way. Um, there's the talk that you give. That's this talk. That's the least of the three talks. And then there's the talk tonight when my head hits the pillow, the talk you wish you gave, right? So it's the talk you intend to give, the talk you give, and the talk you wish you gave. And the forward to the second edition is kind of Bill's third talk, Right? That's his first chance to get back into the book. You know, he kind of wants to write the big book, but they won't let him. You know, <laughs> you know that's one of the reasons he writes at 12 and 12. He says, um, you know, people were starting to think that the big book was holy writ. You know, and then he goes, yeah, but I know who wrote it, right? You know, and Bill is our, the author and architect of all three legacies, Recovery of the Twelve Steps, Unity of the Twelve Traditions, and Service of the Twelve Concepts. And then he would spend three decades explaining those legacies to us, Right. In 1954, Bill did a talk at the Texas AA State Convention. And in that talk, he was actually slated Saturday night to talk about the traditions, which he was trying to do at that time, you know, educate the fellowship about the traditions. You know, without the steps, you know, I'm not here tonight, but without the traditions, there's no meeting. The traditions are the glue that holds 12-step fellowships together, right? And he says, but, uh, you know, normally, it's funny, there's letters in the archives asking Bill to come and tell what was usually referred to as the bedtime story, his story, right? And it says, but if you're going to come and talk about the traditions, don't even bother coming. (laughs) Like, that's incredible. The the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And, um, but they want to hear his story, not about the traditions, right? But even he says that night, he says, I think for such a festive affair, that would be a kind of grim talk, so I'm just going to talk about our history and the book. And he does. And he, said, and he uses an interesting phrase that night. And he's talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous got to the Rockefellers through Willard Richardson that he got to through his brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong. He shows up in Bill's story. It says, my brother-in-law, a physician, paying for his rehab to Towns Hospital. That's Dr. Leonard Strong that's married to Bill's sister, Dorothy. He's the one footing the bills at Towns Hospital. Bill doesn't have any money. Towns Hospital is a private hospital for well-to-do people that are paying for rehab for alcoholics and addicts, right? And, um, but he says that, but what he talks about is on what slender threads our destiny does hang. That's how he got to the Rockefellers. The one other time he talks about slender threads, well, he talks about, he paraphrases it when he talks about, you know, we, we always talk about AA starting in Akron, you know, June 10th with 1935 when, you know, Bill, when Doc, Dr. Bob gets sober, his first sponsee, first successful sponsee. Um, but Bill always said that in a practical way, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous started in the, in the office of a Swiss psychiatrist, meaning Carl Jung, um, who had enough humility not to put Roland Hazard, who had more money than God, on the couch for two years and soak him, but say, my art has failed you. Psychiatry and medicine have failed you. You need to go find a spiritual experience. And Bill always said that in a practical sense, that's, that's where AA began. 
But he's talking about, you know, when, right after he gets sober, his, uh, he's talking about Lois's family is getting on his back. She's still working at Lesser's department store supporting him. You know, she's already had to leave her job at Macy's from taking too much time off and taking Bill into the country to get him sober. And then that, every time she gets him back to New York City, he gets drunk again, right? So she's had to, take a, she's had to leave that job. And they're getting all over him, so he starts going down to Wall Street as a hanger-on just to, like, kind of bluff, bluff Lois's family that he can show that he's trying to work again. And he says that he strikes up a conversation with a stranger. And a few hours later, he's involved in a proxy fight in Akron for the National Rubber Machine Company, which is ultimately how he winds up running into Dr. Bob, right? And once again, he says, on what slender threads our destiny does hang. So... I want to talk a little bit about those slender threads. You know, sometimes we hear about the magic of AA, but I think it's much more about mystery and miracle. You know, when we think of magic, you know, if you're sitting right now in a magic show and the guy's up here and he pulls a rabbit out of a hat, you're like, oh my God, that was incredible. That's so awesome. How did he do that? And then the asshole or the person next to you, you know, <laughs> says, oh, yeah, that's nothing. There's a secret compartment in the bottom of the hat. And if anybody has a magic hat, they could do it. And what happens to the magic? It just dissipates, right? It just is extinguished right there. Because magic is explicable. <clears throat> but what does Bill Wilson see when Abby calls on him in his story in the kitchen, the kitchen call? There's something about his eyes that was inexplicable, unexplainable, undefinable, right? That's about, Alcoholics Anonymous is more about mystery and miracle. One of my favorite expressions about that was Bill, before one of his talks, my favorite talk that Bill Wilson ever did. <clears throat> I should probably take this watch off. You know, when I stop, I forget where I was. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Tom. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Bill Wilson's favorite talk. Thank you, Robert. The first conference I spoke at after my accident, Robert was there. He remembers. At Swansea's all lined up in the first row at the hotel at the, at the, in the banquet room at this conference because I kept forgetting where I was, and they would like have to remind me again and again like where the, what the hell I was talking about. Um, so it still happens. It's just not as bad as it used to be, so bear with me. Right? Um, so my favorite talk, what he says is that he's talking about, and he starts his talk off, and he says that on the way to do this talk, what was on his mind was the grace of God as it refers to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think about that mystery and miracle. And what he said is that he had heard that if you had, if took a grain of wheat that had been stored in a dry place for centuries and placed it in the right soil with the right climate and with enough light from above, that it would manifest life, unfold, and grow. And he looked at Alcoholics Anonymous the same way. The first big publicity for Alcoholics Anonymous came at the same time that the Appendix 2 was being put in the big, big book, in the spring of 1941. And there was an article in the Saturday, March 1st, 1941, Saturday Evening Post, 
by Jack Alexander, an investigative reporter, and um, sent to kind of go like find out about this new racket, AA, and who's getting all the money. And he had you know, done s stories on the docks and the unions in Philly and New Jersey and New York and uh, you know, busted them. And he goes and studies Alcoholics Anonymous, but, and he goes out to Akron, meets Dr. Bob, and goes to meetings. And to his astonishment, and probably to his delight, finds out that it's not a racket and nobody's getting any of the money and Alcoholics Anonymous is exactly what it says and writes a glowing article, right? There's a, as I said, there's 2,000 alcoholics in AA at the time. In the next, it's taken six years to get 2,000. In the next six months, another 6,000 alcoholics will come in as a result of that article. You know, AA starts to take off, right, in 41. And in that article, there were a number of psychiatrists that testified to the efficacy of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially in really grim cases of alcoholism. The first woman to get sober, well, the first woman was Florence R., Florence Rankin. That's why the book couldn't be called 100 Men, because it would have been 100 men and one woman, right? So nobody wanted to call it that. <laughs> and, um, but she gets drunk shortly after the book is published. But the first woman to maintain sobriety was a woman named Marty Mann, right? And she is in a, she's in a, an institution up in Connecticut called Blythewood Sanitarium. And the person who runs that, the head psychiatrist, is a guy named Harry Tebow. Some of you may, may be familiar with him, may have sponsors that turned you on to him, ego deflation at death. Bill Wilson called him the first psychiatric friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. He actually, from the mid-40s to the mid-50s, becomes Bill's personal psychiatrist while he's going through his depression. And in the spring, in, in, in February of 1939, they published what's called the multiglyph. It's 400 copies, an offset print run, right before the book is published. And it goes out to clergy, and it goes out to people in medicine and alcoholics and educators, and just to get a feel for, have we offended anybody? Have we got it right about the book and whatnot? And Harry Tebow gets a copy, and he knows he has an alcoholic patient, and that's Marty Mann. So he gives Marty Mann a copy of the multilith, thinking it'll do her some good, she reads it, cops her resentment right away, piss, gets pissed, throws the book away. But Harry Tebow knows, no, she's an alcoholic, this would help her, and he convinces her to read it again. And something sticks in her mind about resentments being the number one offender. And she reads it and knows that there's something there. And at the time, the only thing in the back of the book, there's no appendices, there's one thing, and that's how to get in touch with AA in New York. She gets in touch with AA in New York, goes down to Clinton Street, Tuesday night Clinton Street, where the meetings are at Bill's house, and goes to a couple of meetings right before the big book gets published. After her first meeting, she goes back to Blythewood and says to one of her, she's got another alcoholic friend there, Granny C., and she says to Granny, it's one of my favorite lines in AA history, Granny, we are not alone. That's amazing. You know, back then, if you had alcoholic insanity, there was no primary diagnosis for alcoholism. You had a mental illness with an alcoholic personality, right? And maybe you went away to an asylum or something, and they did some convulsive therapy or electroshock or, God forbid, right, a lobotomy, right, to remove the alcoholic personality, right, part. And um, so she has another doctor there, and it's a renowned neurologist, and his name is Foster Kennedy. And... Marty Mann is under the care of Harry Tebow and Foster Kennedy and not getting better. But what they see is Marty Mann get better in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And so Foster Kennedy becomes curious, asks her about it. She, calls, she forwards him to Bill Wilson in New York. Foster Kennedy contacts Bill Wilson. Bill says, why don't you go to some meetings and find out what we're doing here? And Foster Kennedy kind of monitors AA and watches Marty Mann get sober, watches other people, grim cases with alcoholism, get sober, where the medical community hasn't had success. And after a while, approaches Bill Wilson and says, what I'd like to do is, why don't you get some of these psychiatrists that have testified in the Saturday Evening Post as to the efficacy of Alcoholics Anonymous in these grim cases of alcoholism to come and testify in the New York Board of Medicine to these doctors to educate them about alcoholism. Bill's like, that's an awesome idea. It's going to be good for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's going to be good for those doctors. It'll be good for the... It's going to be good for everything, right? It's a win-win-win situation. And so Bill contacts all these doctors that testified in the article. If they'll come and, t- and, come and speak in front of the, the board in, in New York City, the board of uh, doctors, about the efficacy of Alcoholics Anonymous, <clears throat> and every one of them says no. To Bill's surprise. And Bill is like, I can't understand it. <clears throat> and he goes and asks each one of them separately, why won't you go and speak? And what he says is that each one separately says the same thing. And what they say is that when we look at Alcoholics Anonymous, what we see is that you have lined up more of the resources in one column than we have been trying to separately apply to alcoholics for years, and we know what a serious problem it is, and we haven't been successful. For example, you have this kinship of suffering and the inability to get sober on their own resources, right? Step one. You have this process of inventory, step four, right? You have this idea of confession, step five. You have this idea of restitution to assuage guilt, right? Step nine. You have this idea of helpfulness to others, 12. And you have this idea of the spiritual or religious element that guides it all, step 11, right? And we can see that in the forward to the second edition. When we talk about the six steps to the Oxford group, steps 4, 5, 9, 12, and 11, and the alcoholics are making up a first step, we're licked by alcohol, right? And, what the di- and Bill says, yeah, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. It's got a pretty good deal. Why don't you come and talk about that? And what the doctors all say is that, well, even when we take the sum of all of those things lined up, those resources in one column and add them up, they do not add up to the speed and efficiency with which you bring about these incredible transformations in people in months, sometimes in weeks, where we have been unsuccessful with these cases for years because we know how serious the problem is. So being men of medicine and, me- and medicine, we think that there's this unknown factor. And as men of science, we refer to it as the X factor. We think that in Alcoholics Anonymous, you refer to it as the grace of God. And who among us, even men of medicine and doctors, is going to go in front of the Academy of Medicine in New York City and explain to them the grace of God? We can't do it. Nobody could. And we simply won't go. 
So I'm not going to presume to be able to explain to you the grace of God, but maybe we can look a little bit about the, so, the, the soil and the right climate and see the light from above. It shines back then and has continued to shine on all of us today. Um, I'm going to look at... Um, I, I, so I want to read something from the book. So, oh, That's my water bottle top. Hopefully I know that if I keep it right here, it'll be okay, right? So if I read from the forward to the second edition on Roman numeral 17. <clears throat> this is right after Bill makes the call on Dr. Bob, right? Hence, the two, men, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered. It's the language of the big book, right? We have to read all the way to the family afterward to see the word recovering in the first sentence of the family afterward, talking about the wife working with the newly recovering husband because he hasn't been through the work yet, right? So when Bill talks about, when I talk about being sober, I mean abstinent. Sobriety means abstinence. I'm talking about the way Bill writes about it. Sometimes I hear this stuff in the room about, I, I was abstinent, but I wasn't sober. That's, that's not the language of the book. When Bill talks about sobriety, he just means abstinent. If he wants to talk about emotional sobriety, he'll talk about that, right? Recovered means through the 12 steps, right? <clears throat> this work, and, and, and by the way, that wasn't their very first case. That was their first successful case, right? He never had another drink. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. Eddie R. was their first. There were, there were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. So Bill's got his first sponsee, Dr. Bob, his second sponsee, Bill Dotson, AA number three. He puts Bill Dotson under, AA, under his first sponsee, right, Dr. Bob, and now he has to go back to New York and start, and start, start a group in, in New York, right? And we know that sometimes I hear that Bill and Bob didn't have sponsees, didn't have sponsors, I mean. Bill Wilson had a sponsor. We know it was Ebby Thatcher because he called him sponsor, and he called him sponsor by name in General Service Conference Approved Literature. Dr. Bob had a sponsor. It was Bill Wilson. We know that because he called Bill Wilson sponsor, and he did, called him sponsor by name in General Service Conference Approved Literature, right? A second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third at Cleveland. There's no group in 37 in Cleveland, but there's people from Cleveland coming down to Akron, right? So Bill Wilson comes back. That shows up in the end of the doctor's opinion, right? So in the do if you're in the doctor's opinion on Roman numeral 31, so the big book, sometimes I hear about it like it's a textbook. It's a storybook. How do I know that? The title page, right? The story of how thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. You know, in the preface, the preface isn't in the book when it's first published. The preface gets in the book in the second edition in 1955, where Bill talks about because this book has become the basic text. It's written as a story. If we know the history 
Every story after Bill's story for the, in, inside the basic text, 164 pages, is more of Bill's story, right? And the story of those people around him. All of it written by Bill, with the exception of two employers, written by Hank Parkhurst, right? So when he gets back in September of 35, he, the first person that he 12 steps in the hospital is Hank Parkhurst. He shows up in the Roman numerals in the doctor's opinion. You know, the doctor, from the doctor's opinion, we get the twofold, twofold nature of the illness, the obsession of mind, and the allergy of the body. From William James and the Oxford group, we get the spiritual part, right? So once, once Silkworth wants to start moving from the problem, the obsession of the mind, and the allergy of the body, to the solution, what does he have to do? He has to go to story, right? And he starts telling the story of Bill Wilson 12-stepping the first two guys that Bill Wilson 12-steps. So on Roman numeral 31, the guy with the gastric hemorrhage, that's Hank Parkhurst. On the following paragraph at the bottom of the page, the guy that hid in the deserted barn, that's Fitz Mayo. His story's in the back of your book, our southern friend. The first two people that Bill gets sober, and now he's got AA going in New York, right? So... By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. So here we are in the, in the fall of 37. I'm in the forward to the second edition on Roman numeral 17, if you're looking in the book, right? And I'm a source guy, so I'm, this is all out of the book and all, all out of the history, right? So... This has been a rough time for Bill. His sponsor, his sponsor, Abby, has just relapsed in the spring of 37 after two and a half years sobriety, right? His right-hand man is Hank Parkhurst, right? So Bill Wilson has some ideas. One is to uh, start a chain of hospitals because hospitals don't like us, right? We don't follow the rules. We're unruly. And most of all, we don't pay our bills when we leave, right? We, we suck. We just suck as patients, right? And um, so Dr. Bob will, will lead the chain of hospitals. We need some missionaries, people that know something about AA and can spread the word. Uh, he'd probably lead that. And the idea about the book, right? So here he is in the fall of 37. Now, the other significant thing in, in the spring of 37, New York is way ahead of Akron as far as the traditions, right? So New York in the spring of 37 has already broken from the Oxford group, Right. So there, there's a, a sixth tradition kind of like taking place, right? It's going to take, you know, two and a half more years for Akron to break away. And we can see that, right? The challenge, the Akron is much more challenged as far as separating itself from the Oxford group, right? So Bill is out in, in Akron in the fall of 37, okay? And it says, it was now time, the struggling groups thought, to place their message in unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by, by the publication of this volume. We just lost 18 months from the fall of 37, and the next line is, oh yeah, we thought about, we thought about we needed to put the message down, and the next line is, yeah, the book is published, right? So what happened in those missing 18 months? So let's just spend a few minutes talking about that. So Bill Wilson brings up these ideas in Akron, and it's called the Counting Noses Meeting, right? And Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob are trying to figure out how many people are sober between New York and Akron, the two groups, and the few people that are coming down from Cleveland, right? 
Clarence isn't even sober yet, you know, the guy that's going to get AA going in, and he doesn't even come in until 38, right? So he isn't even around yet, right? <clears throat> so they're counting noses, and they, they figure that they count 40 people. It's called a counting noses meeting. And Bill and, and Bob enter in what they call a quiet moment of ecstasy because they think that they've tapped into something special. They th- that's wholesale recovery at this point, right? I don't have time to go into it, but there's only been other, one other wholesale time for recovery of alcoholics, and that was a century early in the Washingtonians. And they have come and gone, right? There's only two wholesale movements in history, right? One is extinct, and you're sitting in the other, right? Right? You know, great stories about love and great stories about redemption, about being lost and found. Right now, if you have a seat in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're sitting in the largest lost and found on the planet, Right? So, there's 18 people. They call a meeting at T. Henry and Clarice Williams where they're having these Oxford group meetings in Akron. There's 18 people, and they they take a vote on whether to go forward with these ideas. And Bill Wilson says that they only won by two. Well, if they're 18 people and they only won by two, that's probably 10-8. And once again, thank you, God, Bill Wilson brought a New York contingent with him, right? Fitz Mayo, Sterling Parker, and Bill Riddell from New York. Otherwise, once again, no book. No book, no AA, right? <clears throat> so it narrowly wins by two, but the people in Akron say, well, we don't know. We don't have any money to do all this stuff. Why don't you go back to New York, talk to some rich people, comes back to New York and tries to get some people to, you know, he start, that's when he starts moaning to his brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong, who says, you know, I knew a gal who had an uncle who might be associated with the philanthropies at the Rockefeller Foundation. That guy is Willard Richardson. Bill Wilson's brother-in-law, Leonard Strong, calls up Willard Richardson. Willard Richardson gets him a meeting over at the Rockefellers, December 13, 1937. They meet with uh, Leroy Chipman, Frank Amos, Willard Richardson, and um, Albert Scott, right? And they have this meeting, and these guys that are on the Rockefeller board kind of like the idea, and they express some interest in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, right, in this idea. And Bill Wilson thinks he's going to put the tap on him for some money. Frank Amos, on his own dime, goes out to Akron and, and examines AA and whatnots and draws up a proposal for $50,000. Rockefeller never gives fifty grand to any charities or anything. So they reduce it to, to 10000 They ask for ten. Rockefeller gives $5,000 and says, this sounds like an altruistic movement, one alcoholic helping another without looking for anything in return. I think money might wreck this thing, right? And that's where we have our seven tradition corporate vow poverty gift, right? <clears throat> so he gives them $5,000. And that $5,000 is put in a trust at Riverside Church. And that $5,000 is distributed among Dr. Bob, Bill, Hank Parkhurst, Fitz Mayo, and Fitz Mayo's wife. Dr. Bob gets a little over half of it, which goes to pay down his mortgage, right? And Rockefeller says, when the money's gone, the money's gone. They start this alcoholic fund in the spring of 38 with the Rockefellers thinking they're going to raise some money, putting the tap on the rich. They can't raise any money. Bill Wilson in the spring of 38, in April of 38, takes another swing through Akron, and once again, he's starting to talk about the big book, and the other ideas have kind of gone by the wayside because the one that will cost the least amount of money is the big book. So that kind of rises to the top. Akron is not for the book. 
They don't want to write the book. He doesn't, and he doesn't have any New York contingent with him, so he's smart enough not to call a vote. <laughs> and, um, you know, so he just leaves, it, leaves well enough alone, comes back to New York, and Bill Wilson wants to get the message out, and there might be some money, but Hank Parkhurst, his right-hand man, really thinks that there might be some money in it, and he really starts getting on Bill. Bill's like, you know what, I can't write a book. I write financial papers, right, the Wall Street stuff. But he convinces him to write, and Bill Wilson starts writing. And he starts writing on, uh, like, May 20th. And by June 17th, he's got the first two chapters written. And that's um, There's a Solution, Chapter 1, and Bill's Story, Chapter 2. I know they get reversed later, right? The first two chapters. And then... Hank has these ideas about what to do about a book, and part of those ideas are that, uh, oh, and that's when Alcoholics Anonymous, the name comes in. He draws up what, he says, Alcoholics Anonymous, the name of the book, published by Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So it's, it's around for about a year before the book is actually published, as the title of the book and as a working name for the fellowship, right? Which Bill referred to as a nameless bunch of drunks. So... Bill Wilson, then Hank says, you know what, we should also have some doctor write, write an opinion, right, and give us a, a recommendation, and that becomes Silkworth, right? So Silkworth writes what you see in the beginning of your book, that short letter before what we think of as the doctor's opinion, that's the letter that was originally used to introduce the first two chapters of the book. Now they think they're going to get some money. They start going around to Rockefeller's friends and dropping Rockefeller's name and Willard Richardson, but still nobody will give any money for the book. They, they, they make the alcoholic fund into an alcoholic foundation. They start with some trustees, those four guys from the Rockefellers that I mentioned, and there's three alcoholic trustees. One of them is Dr. Bob, and they still can't get any money. And the big book just looks like it's just not getting anywhere. And then they start to go through a number of machinations. There's a guy, Silas Bent, who's a writer in New Jersey, and he, has, he writes a little um, a supplement for this, we the Pe- for this um, magazine. For this magazine, it's a supplement, like a parade magazine that goes out to like millions of subscribers, right? And they go and they pitch to him, and they think that they'll get a magazine article in there and that 20,000 people might reply to it. And they say that what they'll do is they'll try to pitch this idea of a book, and they'll give them five chapters for one dollar, and then that'll give them enough money to write the rest of the book. Well, there's only one problem, right? They've only got two chapters, so Bill's got to get writing again. But now Bill is finally convinced that he does need to write, and he can write the book. And he starts writing on September 15th, and in the next two weeks, by September 27th, he's got more about alcoholism from the We Agnostics written, and he sends those out to Akron as well to get their feedback, right? They come up with a number of ideas to make money. They go to um, Harper's, magazine, Harper's Publishing. They're going to get a $1,500 advance. And, but then Hank Parker is worried because then they won't have the rights, right? And then they won't own the rights. So at that juncture, Rockefellers want them to go with that Harper's, Harper's Publishing. They won't go with Harper's Publishing, thanks to Hank. Thank you, God. Otherwise, we lose the big book, right? And um, they separate from the Rockefellers. And for the next few months, they'll try, what they do is they start the... Some of you are familiar with Works Publishing. And <clears throat> they start selling shares of stock. They get some money from Charlie Towns, the owner of Towns Hospital, where Bill Wilson got sober. They start selling stock at $25 par value. They sell it for $5, $5 a month for five months. 200 shares to alcoholics. 
Bill Wilson takes 200 shares and Hank Parkhurst takes 200 shares. And they start to get a little money for the stock. They start to get some money, money coming in a little bit. Bill Wilson gets busy. In the end, in the, in the beginning of November, he writes chapter 7, working with others. He writes two, two wives, and he writes the family afterward, right? And they go, out, they go out to Akron, right? In the end of November, he writes, Hank Parkhurst writes two employers. I know sometimes there's some controversy about, you know, thinking that Bill wrote it. It's the only chapter in the basic text that doesn't have the words God and spiritual. If any of you know what Hank Parker's story was, his story was the unbeliever. You have to have a first edition to have it. You know, he's the atheist, right? And um, <clears throat> where, what was I saying? What? The unbeliever. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so anyways, oh, boy. So <laughs> we don't have much further, right? Um, so... And, and Bill, writes, Bill writes a vision for you. And here we are at the end of November. Now, there's no record uh, at this juncture. They've stopped sending the, to Akron. There's a letter like November 13th or 17th, something like that. Bill Wilson pleading with Dr. Bob, basically, hey, we'd love some feedback from you about the book and the chapters. We're not hearing much. And Dr. Bob is basically like, yo, that's your, that's your thing, dog. You know, you, you know, you're writing the book. I don't have anything to do with the book, right? And... Um, so, and then, so then here he is. It's the beginning of December, you know, 1938. And Bill Wilson says, you know, I got to get this thing. I got to get a program down, right? And, and we find it. And here he is, you know, a couple of weeks away or, or right around a couple of days away from his four-year anniversary. He got sober December 11th, 1934, as he walks into his fourth and final rehab at Towns Hospital. And there he is in the beginning of December. It's like, i got to get this down, having one of his imaginary ulcers, pulls out a yellow pad, and it says in the next 30 minutes, he writes down the 200 words that we know as the 12 steps today, right? And once he has the 12 steps, now he can finally put the program together. At this juncture, all we have is steps 1, 2, and 12. Bill's a two-stepper, you know, and an admitted two-stepper. You know, he spends the rest of his life talking about that. He's a big book dumper, right? <clears throat> but now he's finally going to write the program because once he writes the steps, now he can write chapter 5, how it works, steps 3 and 4, and he can write chapter 6 into action, steps 5 through 11. And now we finally have the entire book. So that's finished by the end of 38. In 39, Tom Musel, the primary, the, the big format editor, Janet Blair does the page by page. Tom Musel takes, takes the first two stories, first two chapters, and juxtaposes them. So we have Bill's story first, and then there's a solution. And sometimes I hear when people read Bill's story, they do that war fever, <laughs> you know, like, like it's so dated. But Bill Wilson started his story just like you and I start our stories. Um, so there's a couple of versions of Bill's story. I have one of them. You know, w one of the ways that I've learned about AA is, as I said, I left 10 years ago, and, you know, you, you meet the guys that are writing the history of AA. They, you know, I've done the bucket list, you know, GSO and, you know, Akron and Stepping Stones and all that, but there's guys, the historians get in the archives behind the archives. There's an application process, right? So I have, you know, one of the original copies of Bill's story. And it starts out, at the age of 10, I went to live with my grandfather and grandmother. 
their ancestors settled a section of Vermont in which I was to grow up. He starts his story just like anybody starts his story at 10 years old. Tom Uzel knocks off the first half dozen you know, paragraphs. So that's why you know, we, don't, we don't have that, right? <clears throat> in... Yeah, so what I wanted to talk about is this. Does anybody know, there's a book, so some of you guys probably have the first edition, right? In, in, at the 75-year anniversary, this is the 80th anniversary for the big book, but at 75 years, they did the anniversary, first edition, right? The big book, it's actually a big book, right? So there's a number of things that got changed, right? Um, like if you have the doctor's opinion, right? The doc, does anybody know the book that started it all, the coffee table book? You know what I'm talking about? The original working manuscript, right? It's a huge book. So it, it's the, it's that multi-glyph coffee that I mentioned, that 400 copies that went out. When, that, when the ideas and suggestions come back in from clergy and from, you know, priests and ministers and whatnot, Hank Parkhurst makes all the comments in that. So I have another problem, an outside issue. I, I like cocaine. Anybody like cocaine? <laughs> Anyways, so, so this year, the World Convention for CA was in Sweden. Last year, it was in Toronto. But six years ago, it was in Fort Lauderdale. In, it was in Florida. And I was one of the speakers at the World Convention. And, and in that World Convention in 2013, they gave all the speakers that book. It's the working manuscript of all the edits that they were making for the big book, right? So if you have that, the, the, in, in Bill's story, the first half of Bill's story is the progression of alcoholism. The third quarter, pages 8 to 12, are, are, are step two. The most important four paragraphs, probably in the big book, are when, when Eddie second steps Bill, making the program wide enough so that all can enter, where he goes, why don't you choose your own conception of God? That, that, isn't, in, that isn't even in the working manuscript. That got in at the very last second. That actually was not written by Bill Wilson. Isn't that something? How the hell did that happen? It sounds like I may have to come back to tell that. Um, in, Bill Wilson, so the reason that we know a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about that's not in your conference-approved literature is because of these AA historians. And, and looking at the letters, the personal letters of these guys, and Hank and Bill were corresponding about the big book all the time. Kathleen, Hank's wife, kicks him out of his house in January of 1939. And for the last 10 weeks, right before the big book is published, Hank is living at Clinton Street with Bill. So they don't have to write each other anymore. They're talking to each other. We're an oral society, sober by anecdote. And I wish I had time to talk to you more about the way this book is written as a story, not as a textbook, because I can support that in many different ways. But one of the ways is Hank has heard Bill tell his story many, many times. And the one thing above all else that changes in our stories is how God was present long before we thought he was, right? What looks at first like coincidence becomes serendipity, becomes synchronicity, the awareness of meaningful coincidences in our lives, which becomes God, right? And Hank knows that what Bill keeps talking about is how every second stepped him and talked about God coming into his life. And Hank puts that in. And that's what opens the gateway wide enough for Bill and many of us to enter. So I know I need to finish. Let me read you one thing, which is my absolute favorite thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, my favorite description.
in almost magical fashion, Alcoholics Anonymous was able to give its religious and non-religious members alike a view of the universe and their place in it that was both exciting and spiritual. In doing so, they borrowed from religion everything that was powerful and uniting while politely declining everything that was self-serving and conflicting. You might call it the spiritual heist of the century. And they did it all unconsciously without realizing it. And in the interest of 10-step honesty, the one thing that I would like to say is there is a slight chance that I could be completely wrong about absolutely everything. <laughs> but other than that, we're good, right? <laughs> God bless you. All right, please join me in thanking Tom one more time. All right, we're going to have Ryan up for our secretary's report. Ryan? Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I've asked Steve to re recover statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering, and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. I recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we'd be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his... We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forties style big book sponsorship. From the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experienced is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back into his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Uh, can I see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? And is there anybody in the room that needs a sponsor? If you could raise your hand. Nope. Oh, we've got a guy back there. Can you stand up real quick? Awesome. So uh, just see anyone of those people that have their hands raised. Let's get them back to God. Please join us on Monday nights uh, for our Big Book study meeting where the Big Book comes alive. Uh, fellowship starts at 6.30, and then we, the study starts at 7.15. And we have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, little red books, Big Book dictionaries. They're all for sale in the back. And we meet every Thursday, starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be ready and courteous uh, at the sound of the bells. Um, we've got a couple announcements. Uh, Broward County Intergroup, uh, there's uh, some contact information up there, hours of operation. Uh, you can get literature, medallions, whatever you need. Also, the gratitude dinner is coming up. Uh, there's a, plan, a planning committee meeting this Saturday coming up. Uh, oh, that's right there. Uh, all right. Never mind. Um, one last announcement, uh, if you smoke or vape, can you just please go down to the buckets down here? Uh, we have them set up. Uh, the Boy Scouts, Boy Scouts are in the building tonight, and if they see you smoking, they might try and put you out. So uh, just make your way down there, and you'll be safe. All right, thank you. Have a good night.
We have tonight's session and all other past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. And I'd like to invite everybody to our Monday night big book study where the big book comes alive. Uh, To those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up down the center aisle. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer, seated with the Lord's Prayer. Who will bring us from shame to grace? It doesn't 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Thank you. 
song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Just won't set me free. Well, clap your hands, you believe me, children. 